0: I didn't intend to preach on the gospel. Uh, I thought I just had to and needed to preach on the Ten Commandments, which is what I'm going to do. But it just occurred to me listening to the gospel this morning that I need to say a couple of things about this. Uh, this is some 3995 biblical scholarship, but you need to, and some uh, another warning since, uh, in some sense, the sermon is about. Uh, ethics and morals, if we're going to talk about the Ten Commandments. Um, This parable of the vineyard uh, is a reminder of of the necessity to understand uh, the means of interpreting the parables. And that means that there are at least three levels on which one can and perhaps should interpret the parables. One is at the level of Uh, Jesus speaking it and what he meant and what the situation on the ground was in his ministry. The second is, what did it mean for Matthew and his community when this parable was spoken and uh, how did it resonate with their situation on the ground? And the third thing is that if we believe that the biblical text is there for all time and so that it may and might have some application to our circumstances as the church and to people's personal lives, we need to see how those connections can be made. Jesus, in his ministry, met a great deal of resistance. And I have no doubt that this parable was spoken when uh, he was frustrated with uh, the resistance from the religious leadership of his time. Because clearly it's a parable about them who resisted his ministry, did not accept his messiahship or any of the things that he was saying uh, about the need for some species of reform within uh, Second Temple Judaism, to use a fancy term, uh, as we move forward. So that needs to be kept in mind. The second thing is, you hear me say this over and over again, Matthew was in all probability a rabbi who was uh, a member of, or perhaps even the leader, of a Jewish Christian synagogue that by the time of the writing of Matthew's gospel was 80% Gentile. And so he is in a situation where, first of all, he wants to do something about um, convincing his uh, religious confreres that this message is for everybody, on the one hand, and on the other hand, because he and his community have received a uh, resistance and rejection from uh, the Jews, he is saying, it appears now, based on my pastoral experience in this Jewish Christian synagogue, that this message is being, or or that our ability to now carry on the continuity between the people of the covenant and the future and the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ is being given over to a new group, the Gentiles. And they're going to take hold of it now because you apparently don't want to do it. Now, the unfortunate thing about this is that in the moving forward in the centuries, this could be um, preached in a very anti-Semitic fashion. And so we need to take great care when we preach on these parables because it is uh, something that can be very easily misconstrued and has led to an enormous amount of bad behavior among Christian people. You know, Pope John Paul II, of all no no wild liberal, (laughs) uh, said that... uh, because of the Holocaust and the misinterpretation of things like this, we have lost the right to proselytize the Jews, at least for a considerable period. So we, we need to take care about that. I just thought I'd say that, you know. I don't want to get on a high horse about this, but it is an important thing. So think of when you hear these parables... You can kind of go like this, and uh, we need to take care. There are some people still, as you know, who don't care about that at all and just say they're going to do what they're going to do. But uh, you need to take very great care in the interpretation of these kinds of parables uh, as you move forward. It gives support to uh, the comment by uh, a very important biblical scholar of the 20th century, Rudolf Bultmann, no conservative, who said that the preacher's task is always to get into the pulpit with fear and trembling. So it is important to uh, bear that in mind as well. So, the Ten Commandments. There's a great website, if you haven't ever been to it, called religioustolerance.org. And in the entry on the Ten Commandments, on all of the aspects of the Ten Commandments, they have two quotations that begin their entrance into uh, a discussion of the the Ten Commandments. The first one is, only 68 of 200 Anglican priests polled could name all Ten Commandments, but half said they believed in space aliens. (laughs) Concerning the Ten Commandments in courthouses and legislatures, you cannot post... Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery, and thou shalt not lie in a building full of lawyers, judges, and politicians. It creates a hostile work environment. And then they say, we apologize to anyone who was offended by either of the above quotations. We simply couldn't resist posting them. So, what I thought I'd do in my sermon is just do a little Ten Commandments 101. And maybe you'll have some questions at the discussion time. And then end by saying, do they have any utility for us today? But maybe we should learn some things about where they came from and uh, how we have studied them over time and all of the things about the Ten Commandments. It's very interesting, when I was preparing this sermon this week, um, the Ten Commandments loom very large, certainly in Protestant Christianity, and we're deeply influenced by the Continental Reformation, and uh, in the former prayer book, and even in the present prayer book in the Catechism, there's a fair amount of time spent on the importance of the Ten Commandments as the law, the moral law, and how you do it, and how you follow it, and so forth, and it's sort of a cornerstone Uh, The Roman Catholic Church also holds the Ten Commandments in very high regard. But there is a, 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 on YouTube, there is a preacher who's now uh, a great favorite among evangelical Christians who watch YouTube named John Piper. And he's a Baptist Calvinist. Very interesting person. And uh, on one of these things, they have, qu- where well, he's sitting at a, in a comfy chair. And there's a table and another guy with a comfy chair and a, and a, you know, MacBook Pro. And they're asking him questions. And he said, and the question was, are Christians under the Ten Commandments? And he said, no, we are not. Paul has none of that. Well, as my Old Testament professor at Nashota House would have said, you can believe that if you want to. <laughs> but it's an interesting conclusion because they are important uh, for most every species of Christianity that I know about. Here's the, here's the origin. Here's the, the, the issues in terms of biblical study and biblical scholarship. Uh, the tradition, with a capital T, has maintained over time that Moses wrote the Ten Commandments. In other words, it supports what we call the mos- Mosaic authorship of the Ten Commandments. Indeed, uh, there's a, a, in the tradition, it says Moses wrote the Pentateuch. He wrote the Torah, the first five books. But um, with uh, biblical scholarship over the last 150 or 200 years, uh, it has been suggested that perhaps that is not so, and that there are two ways in which the Ten Commandments as an example came into being. Um, First of all, uh, depending on how you date the writing of the Torah, if you date it uh, when most do now, which is during the Babylonian captivity... That's 500, 600, 500 B.C. And what we're talking about in terms of the wilderness, wandering in the wilderness and the Ten Commandments, that's 1400 B.C. So that means there's a fair gap between uh, the historical events themselves and the, and the writing down of these, of these stories and of things like the Ten C- Commandments. It's interesting because, again, in my studies, I found Reginald Fuller, who's one of the great biblical scholars of the 20th century, um, who says uh, and supports the fact that there has been a revival in the belief in the Mosaic authorship of the Ten Commandments. So it raises some interesting uh, conversation about that. Some would suggest that if even Moses wrote them, that he did some borrowing. Because we know now from the ancient literature that we have unearthed that there were legal codes like this that were around during the time of the writing of the Ten Commandments. You know, uh, the Hittites, for example, may be a place where some of these laws uh, or laws like them came. But the Ten Commandments, as they are presented, are unique. First of all, they are, um, you know the joke, somebody was in a political campaign or something several years ago, the Ten Commandments are not the Ten Suggestions. That's true, they're not, right? So the Hittites would say, and some of the other legal codes that were around would say, if you do this, these are the consequences for doing it, Right? In the Ten Commandments, it says, Thou shall or thou shalt not do these things. It's sort of like riding a train in Italy, where the sign on the car, if you're in a a train, it says, um, It is unwise to lean your head out the window of a moving train. If you're in a train in Germany, the sign says, It is forbidden to put your head out the window of a moving train. So it's a different sort of a thing. What, what I would suggest and what Dr. Fuller suggests is that Moses may have used some of this material, but wrote it and interpreted in light of his monotheistic faith, his belief in the one God, and how now this calls the people... Uh, of Israel wandering in the wilderness to develop some species of self-regulation, both in terms of their community life, corporately and personally. You know, part of being a healthy human being and part of relating to other people in a healthy fashion is to learn how to engage in the self-regulation of instinctual drives. It isn't an excuse to say, this is natural. Of course it is. But there needs to be some regulation of these instinctual drives. So I would suspect that uh, when you got a gang of people wandering around in the wilderness and they seem to be a little bit bewildered and uh, moving around, you know, they could have got to the promised land much more quickly. Jerry Witherspoon proved that Uh, They could have got there in about three weeks or four weeks, even with that group of people. So they must have been going down certain roads. The other thing is, is the development of some sense of distinctiveness among the people. Some understanding of the covenantal relationship that they have with God. Remember, they're moving through the wilderness and they encounter other cultures and other ways of being and relating and over 40 years you begin to uh, intermarry and you come up against the religious practices of the Hittites so you're in the tent and your Hittite husband or your Hittite wife says listen let's set up a little Ashtoreth here well, you know one of those little clay. let's do it it, it might help and Good luck and fertility and, you know, stuff. And Moses and the leadership said nothing doing. There's only one. So we need to, in some way, enforce this uh, understanding of how it works. In In our tradition as Christian people, the Ten Commandments must always be interpreted in light of the teaching of Jesus. And so the counterpoint to the Ten Commandments is the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel. Which is a, a different twist on what this means. The Ten Commandments have never gone away, and by the time of St. Augustine, in the 4th century, the end of the 4th century, beginning of the 5th century, they were, it was used regularly in catechesis and teaching and in, uh, making, giving people an idea about who they are and how they're supposed to live and what they're supposed to do. The thing I have about the Ten Commandments is, is that I realize that it's not a complete list. There it leaves stuff out, you know. In one sense, it's a pretty bare bones list of not don't do this, you know, kind of thing. But it also means that a lot of what goes on then seems to go on now. If you're prohibiting the ashtaroth in the tent, we're not gonna have that much. But uh, there's a lot of worship around here and um, an overweening confidence of one's outlook, uh, the entrepreneurial skill and zeal with which we're able to do a great many things, leaving out uh, the role of serendipity in the way in which people uh, have become successful, understanding that there is in some way um, uh, a problem with competitiveness that uh, becomes uh, more than we can bear. I haven't been fully cognizant, by the way. This doesn't relate to this completely. But this issue of bullying has become a big problem in our in our culture around here. And it must flow from something. And I'm not sure exactly. Uh, I don't know enough about it to wonder what it could be. Uh, but it could be a certain kind of self-satisfaction that isn't, it isn't good. Here's a commercial message again for reading that Atlantic Monthly article, "How to Send Your Kid into Therapy." <laughs> <laughs> Two months ago, a great article. You can get it online. It's a very good article about this uh, and how how we live in a culture that uh, doesn't seem like we're making any mistakes, and then here we here we are, you know. So the Ten Commandments do have some value. I've also noticed that murder, envy, adultery, lying uh, doesn't seem to be any less great now than it did in the wilderness. So maybe it is a good thing to check. A few times a year we read the Ten Commandments at the beginning of the Mass uh, as an introduction to the penitential rite. We read them you can be care- um, there was a preacher that i heard many years ago in the late 1960s who was a canon at st paul's cathedral in london and he came to grace cathedral in san francisco his name was canon Freddie hood and he had one of those public school accents that was you know copying some da- hit some Tudor's speech impediment you know so he was fwetty hood very <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you, you know that deal you get that anyway he preached a sermon and he began his sermon and he said you know in many rural English country it perishes you go into the church and on either side of the chancel are the ten commandments on either side put up on the wall And he said, I was wandering one day, visiting old churches in the wilds of equatorial Sussex. And I walked into a church, and instead of the Ten Commandments on either side of the chancel was the table of kindred and affinity. (laughs) And in the old prayer book, they had, you know, a table of, you know, who you could marry and who you could in terms of how closely you related were, were to them. And so uh, it was a table of kindred and affinity, and under the entry that said, a man may not marry his grandmother, (laughs) some acolyte in the Ancient of Days wrote underneath, Lord, have mercy upon us and incline our hearts to keep this law. (laughs) So, so maybe it's a good idea to have a little bit of humor about it. The reason it's funny is because in the, in the liturgy, the congregational response to thou shalt do no murder is, Lord, have mercy upon us and incline our hearts to keep this law. So he used the response to the Ten Commandments in the liturgy to the table of kindred and affinity. So that's a, a good thing. Uh, in a commentary that I read on the Ten Commandments this week, Uh, It said, God has given us the Ten Commandments not to burden us with oppressive rules and laws in order to earn God's love, but as a sure way to demonstrate our gratefulness for the God who has already chosen, loved, and saved us. And so maybe they have some value uh, in that regard as a sign of our own faithfulness. So this week, if you have time, take a little peek at the Ten Commandments and see what you think. Amen.